Welcome to Blueprint for Wealth. I'm Wayne Zell, host of this fast-paced video cast designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by the law firm of Zell Law, a business, estate, tax, and fiduciary law firm located in Reston, Virginia, and Savannah, Georgia, serving clients all across the country. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today, we've got a special guest and a special topic for you. Our special guest is Marissa Levin of Successful Culture International, and we'll get to her after we do our educational moment. Our educational moment is boards of advisors, something that Marissa knows a lot about, and we're going to give you sort of a preemptive strike so that you understand what boards of advisors are and how they work and how they differentiate from boards of directors. So without further ado, let's get to our topic. What is a board of advisors? What are the differences and advantages that boards of advisors give you over a board of directors? And what are the standard arrangements and compensation arrangements for members of the board? And last, how do we start to build a board of advisors and when do we do it? Well, a board of advisors is generally a group of up to five business professionals who provide advice on how you as the business owner can manage your business better. It's informal, so it's really more flexible than you might imagine. And it's used mostly by startup businesses to help the owner do things that they just can't do themselves. Boards of advisors may or may not meet regularly, but they often provide one-on-one -on -one advice and counsel to the CEO or the owner of the business. It's different being a member of a board of advisors than being a, just a straight old consultant or a mentor to the owner of the business. A consultant can be a member of a board of advisors, but typically performs single one-off projects for cash compensation. A mentor is somebody that wants to help you, is willing to help you, and is generally unpaid and acts in an informal capacity. Mentors may evolve into consultants. Consultants may evolve into board of advisor members. Who should serve on the board? Who are the key members that should be on a, your board of advisors? Well, I usually break it down into five categories, and it could be broken down into different categories, and you may or may not need all of these categories. For example, having a lawyer involved with your board of advisors is not a bad idea, particularly if you're in a heavily regulated industry like securities brokerage or investment advisory services. Having a finance and accounting specialist is really important. Understanding not only how to set up your books and records, but how to make good financial decisions over the long haul. Raising capital. How do you do it? How do you structure things? Having a human resources expert really becomes beneficial when you start bringing on employees, more than just one employee, a group of employees, building the processes and the procedures and the back office uh, setup that you need for your employees. Generating a relationship with a marketing expert, a business development expert, a sales expert who can help drive business to your business 
is absolutely critical, in my opinion, to having a successful board of advisors. And last, obviously, if you have somebody who's really knowledgeable of your industry, and it may be one of these or more of these people already have the industry knowledge that you need, and it would be beneficial if they did, to help you focus your business. Like if it's a technology business, having a technologist who's done this before would be helpful. If it's a government contracting business, having somebody who's built and exited from successfully a government contracting business would be really helpful for the government contractors out there who are listening to this video cast. What's the difference between a board of advisors and a board of directors? Well, as I mentioned, a board of advisors can be, in, can be formed informally. It doesn't really require uh, legal corporate action, although it can. It, the board is usually hand-picked by the CEO or the owner of the business, and so, therefore it's easy to create and it's easy to terminate. The relationship between the company and its board of advisors is usually managed by individual contracts with the members of the board. There are no fiduciary duties typically that are owed by a board of advisors, meaning they don't have any liability and shouldn't have liability, and their contract should say that, for the services that they provide in counseling and guiding the CEO or the owner of the business. And usually, usually in small businesses particularly, board of advisor members are compensated in equity. It might be stock it might be a limited liability company interest. It might be a profits interest in a partnership structure. It might be stock options or equity unit boards. There are lots of different ways of doing the equity. It could be real equity. It could be synthetic equity. But all of that is tied into incentivizing the member of the board to stay involved with you and your business and give good advice so you can grow the business over time. A board of directors is very different. A board of directors and a corporation is installed by the vote of the shareholders in accordance with the company's bylaws or maybe a special shareholder agreement. The members of the board of directors owe fiduciary duties to the company and to the shareholders in the form of the duty of care, loyalty, prudence, to administer properly and manage properly the company because the board is ultimately responsible for management. The management team, the CEO and the people reporting to the CEO or the president, reports to the board of directors. And with a board of directors, because there are fiduciary duties, there's higher risk. And because there's higher risk, there's typically a higher cost to the company. Many boards of directors are protected by going out and purchasing directors and officers insurance, DNO insurance. Also, there may be cash compensation in addition to equity compensation for folks who serve on the board. And of course, travel allowances and reimbursement are the norm rather than the exception for members of boards who are investing their time, effort, and expertise in helping you run your business. In a board of advisors, you typically have to cover certain things to make the advisor feel comfortable and to protect the company. The normal things to include include a confidentiality or non-disclosure provision that protects the trade secrets of the company 
and protects the intellectual property, the IP of the company. It may outline the duties and responsibilities, the expected give by the advisor to the, to the company or the CEO or the owner. It may include a specific number of hours that are expected by the advisor on a monthly or quarterly basis. And clearly, the owner wants the advisor to be available to the owner, the CEO, maybe the chief operating officer, the chief information or technology officer, or even the, or even the CFO, the financial officer of the company, to make sure that they're on the right track in doing what they're supposed to do to build the company in the right way. There's usually a term which indicates how long the agreement is for. It might be for a year, might be for two. And then, of course, compensation. And again, with a board of advisors, you can obviously reimburse them for expenses, but the typical structure involves granting them a small amount of equity. And what is equity? Equity is ownership of common stock. It might be stock options. It could be stock appreciation rights or phantom stock, which is commonly referred to as synthetic equity. But I have seen more situations involving boards of advisors where the advisor is not paid cash compensation. And I think the reason for that is to incentivize them to really try to add value to the company based on the limited time that they're spending. The level of equity, obviously, is going to depend on the size of the company, its uh, maturity level. If, is it a basic startup that's just starting up out of the block? Does it have a capital structure? And what does the capital structure allow for? And what is the individual's background and experience? What do they bring to the table to help grow this company? Usually it might be between a quarter of a percent and one percent of fully diluted equity, meaning all the stock that is issued or will be issued under plans that have been reserved for future issuances to employees and investors in the company. It may require vesting over some period of time to earn the full amount of equity being granted. And if that's the case, there may be a two-year vesting period, a three-year vesting period with some cliff, which means that during that initial cliff period, the owner may decide that this is not working out for the company or working out for the owner, so they have the right to terminate them, the advisor, without owing them anything. Not a bad thing, but it wouldn't be fair, obviously, to the advisor, and word will get around town if the owner is being... Uh, uh, very uh, close to the vest in allowing equity, be, equity to be granted to the advisor. I've often uh, structured these advisory agreements to require performance vesting, particularly if it's somebody who is helping with manufacturing or sales or product delivery or marketing. There might be benchmarks that have to be set, like a scientist has to spend a certain amount of hours per month reviewing new drug applications or drug testing or reviewing FDA results and giving feedback to the company if it's a biotech company. When do you start building a board of advisors? Well, once you start going down the road of hiring key employees or other managers for the business, that's when I would start considering bringing in a board of advisors to help you manage the process of managing the, member, the managers. When you start ramping up your sales and marketing process, bringing on a, an advisor who is an expert in sales and marketing is a great idea. 
when you're ramping up production or developing strategic partnerships where the advisor might be able to add uh, value by bringing in strategic partners into the business. When you're going into new geographic mar markets where the advisor may reside or have knowledge of or vertical markets that might be new ways of doing business with the products or technology that you've got. When you're raising capital, a great uh, addition to your team is having a member of the board of advisors who's done it before, particularly in the finance sector. We're adding research and scientific expertise. Where do you find them? Well, first look into your own network to see who you know that might help you with your business that you're starting. Because most likely, you're coming out of a business that you worked in for years and you may have experience that you may want to bring in somebody else that you know from your network from before. But obviously, you want to tap into your advisors, to your network, and other service providers, such as attorneys and CPAs, venture capitalists, investment bankers, people who can be of great help to you in growing your board of advisors, as well as mentors who want to help you and may know of people who may want to invest more time with you. Selecting the right advisor is absolutely critical. Who's going to help you the most? Well, the first thing to do is try to identify gaps in your business model. Are there gaps in finance or HR? Are there gaps in capital access? Do we need to be able to raise money to do what we want to do? Do we need engineering help or R&D, legal, industry specialty? And then once we've identified the gaps, seek candidates that will help you fill those gaps. Conduct interviews. Have your mentors or other people that are willing to help you who know your business model try to do the interviews with you. Get references from the advisors so that you can go out to their references and make sure that this is a, going to be a good, productive addition to your team. And don't just go for the big name. I've had this happen before. I, I worked with a company way back in 2000, and it was a startup internet commerce company. It was great. They had a great idea at the time. And they brought in a very well-known former government official, somebody that you would recognize if I mentioned that person's name. And the person was being offered $25,000 plus an equity stake to come to the meetings and you know, add their expertise. But the question was, what was that individual going to be able to add? And were they really dedicated to helping us? Because we're just a startup. That means they're going to have to really tap into their network to help us get started. And what turned out to happen was the name was great. It was great to include them in marketing materials when you're trying to go out and raise money. But in, in essence, the individual really didn't show up and didn't provide any value overall. Avoid conflicts of interest and make sure the people that you're bringing on your advisory board are available to help you. So that's a little summary about advisory boards. Welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth. And with me today is my special guest, Thomas Seneca of TM Wealth Management. Welcome, Thomas. Hey, Wayne. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you on the program today. And we're going to be talking about a special type of wealth management firm that Thomas founded back in 2010. He's a graduate of... Brigham Young University. He's a graduate of Columbia Business School, which is really impressive. And he taught as an adjunct professor at Virginia International University for many years. Um, Thomas is 
a product of Wall Street. He worked on Wall Street. He worked at Goldman Sachs. He worked at Deutsche Bank. And he found that there were certain things that he wanted to do differently, and he wanted to bring some of the benefits that those firms have to his clients. So tell me about how you started TM Wealth Management, you know, back in 2010. Yeah, you know, and I'd always grown up wanting to be an investment banker. And so went to uh, Columbia and from there went to work for Goldman Sachs in New York and then went to Deutsche Bank out in San Francisco doing tech investment banking. Mm -hmm. And it was great experience. And I had kind of accomplished my goal. I was on Wall Street working for bulge bracket investment banks. But I learned two important things in my time on Wall Street in investment banking. One is it's not very conducive to a family. So it, that's something that was important to me. Uh, and the second thing that I learned about myself is I've got to be doing something. My makeup is such that I've got to be doing something I feel has an impact that matters. Now, of course, I'm sure there's tons of investment bankers out there that would say, hey, what I do really matters. Yeah. Um, and sure, to a certain extent, in a functioning capitalist society, it does. But for me, when you do a large IPO, M&A transaction, you go to the nice dinners, pat yourself on the back, and then you move on to the next transaction. Right. For me, I've got to feel like I'm doing something that really matters and has an impact. And while I'm passionate about the financial markets, what was rewarding for me in switching to wealth management was that I could sit across the table from families and individuals, help them make good financial decisions so that their financial resources could have the impact either on them or the causes of the people that they care about. Okay. And really develop that relationship and be, have it be a lifelong relationship that I can really have that impact on their lives. That at the end of the day, we say, hey, you know what? It was great that Thomas was involved in our lives because he really had an impact. Right. And so for me, that's where I was able to bring kind of that high finance institutional quality advice to individuals and families to help them have the impact that they want to have. So what exactly was it that you could bring from those institutional uh, companies, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank particularly, to a client that you, where you could apply stuff that you learned in the investment banking sense to the individuals that you're representing? And many of them are you know, top executives. Yeah, it really was that when you can see kind of, you know, using a, a term we hear around here in the D.C. area a lot, when you can kind of see how the sausage is made, Mm -hmm. Right. When a company company goes public or an M&A transaction goes through, you mm -hmm. can really understand what the financial impacts of that are and can bring that analysis to the overall portfolio. And in okay. addition to that, looking at things that are outside of the traditional stocks and bonds portfolios, kind of non-traditional assets, when you're looking at real estate, private equity, even now, you know, cryptocurrencies, you start to bring kind of that analysis to say, OK, how does this impact the overall functioning of the portfolio, the risk and return relationship of the portfolio, and help bring that experience and that outcome to the clients. Mm -hmm. In addition, it's just the overall sophistication of the analysis that goes into not only structuring the portfolio, but also looking at everything holistically. As you know, Wayne, in our relationship, looking at things from tax planning, estate planning, their insurances, their risk management, in addition to the money management and financial planning. So it really is bringing all of that together to help them achieve the outcomes that they want. So how are you able to uh, best service all of these clients that you represent being a small shop? I mean, you, you want to be able to bring them the best and the most uh, attractive ideas. So, for example, I, you know, I heard you mention cryptocurrency. How do you bring cryptocurrency opportunities to your clients today? 
Yeah. So um, kind of when I went into from Wall Street into wealth management, having worked in a bulge bracket investment bank, kind of the models there is that you've got to have thousands of client relationships to kind of make the model work. Okay. And I looked at it and said, how can you add consistent value to that many relationships? Right. And so that's why with TM Wealth Management, you look at, you know, everything you need to know about us is in our logo, right? It says independent. So I don't have a home office saying, hey, this month it's bond funds. Let's make sure that, you know, that's part of the discussion. Um, so we're independent. Boutique to me was important because when you have fewer relationships, you can go a lot deeper. We really get to know the clients really well, their families, extended family, the goals, you know, what, what they value, and we can help align their financial resources with the things that they value. And then lastly was fiduciary, really having that legal responsibility to do what's in the best interest of the clients. And so by bringing all of those things together, we can get a real good sense of what the client needs are, the risk profiles, what they're trying to accomplish, and then structure their resources, their financial resources to align with the things that they value. What, what are the uh, challenges that you've faced as a wealth manager, a small boutique wealth manager, but yet, you know, robust with the, all the services that you provide or, you know, try to provide to your clients, what, what's the, what would you say the biggest challenge that you are facing today and you've faced in the last 12 years since you started up this business? Yeah, from a, from a business sense, I think, and, and this is probably the challenge that a lot of, of um, folks seeking out our services deal with it's really hard to cut through the noise. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody says they're comprehensive. Everybody says they're client focused. Everybody says they do all these great things, but it, the experience that the, the client actually has is inconsistent with what the market is saying that they do. Mm -hmm. um, and so the real challenge for us has been to try and help cut through the noise to help prospective clients understand how we really are different in the service that we can provide. And that's challenging. Because without actually experiencing it, it's hard to really understand the difference. The analogy that I would make is um, anyone that's ever flown private realizes how different all other types of air travel are. And so you, you really enjoy that experience. It's way different. It's much more convenient. Um, and so without experiencing it, though, you can't really appreciate how different it is. And so that's why when we interact with prospective new clients, we take them through what we call our financial roadmap experience. Okay. There's no cost. There's no obligation. It really is an opportunity for them to get to know us, for us to get to know them, see how we deal with things, how we can take them through our process so they can really get that firsthand experience and then say, hey, this really fits for me. And I think the other important thing for us is we're not trying to be everything to everyone. Right. We are trying to provide a high level of comprehensive service to a select group of families and individuals that see the value in having someone have that kind of CFO or financial quarterback kind of perspective that can then coordinate all their other aspects of their financial lives. So do you, you basically will sort of serve as a quasi CFO for these families that you're working with? Is that yeah, right? it was interesting. I sit down with a, a prospective client that said, you know, we talked about all these different things, but I just, can you lay out for me, what do you do and then what do we do? And I said to them, in the end, you are taking all of your financial elements and responsibilities and pushing those across the table to us. And we take over all of it, mm -hmm. right? Obviously they're involved and, and want to be uh, engaged. 
And the best way, you know, another analogy that I could use, you know, take a, a baseball team, right? Our clients are the owners of the baseball team. We are the manager of the baseball team. And we decide what players to put on the field, right? If that particular money manager or pitcher isn't performing, then we pull them out and put somebody else in. If that particular CPA isn't doing their job, then we'll pull them out and put them in. Same thing with trust and estate attorneys, insurance, all right. across the board. And so that's kind of the role that we function as is we develop, take a lot of time on the front end to really understand what is the strategy, I mean, continuing the baseball analogy, what's the goal? Is it to win the World Series? Is it to win the pennant? Is it to, you know, what, what is the goal? And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out their outcomes that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And then we have the team, the players that we can put on the field to help them accomplish that. So you're the manager of the baseball team. You're maybe the quarter, not maybe the coach of the football team, not necessarily the quarterback, or you could be the quarterback. I'm trying to use a sports analogy <laughs> yeah. for the, where my head's at these days. But uh, that's that's interesting. And I think it's it's good because anyone who tries to be everything to all people inevitably is going to stumble on something. You, you can't be everything to everybody, right? So, yeah, I think when you try to be everything to all people, you're in the end, you're nothing to, to, to no one, right? I mean, it just doesn't fit. And so, absolutely. you know, we're not trying to be everything to everyone. We have a very specific type of client that we like to work with. And, and these are clients whose financial lives are starting to get complex, right? They've got multiple 401ks, they got IRAs, they've got business interests, they've got LLCs, they've got real estate holdings, college okay. funds, you know, maybe it's some, some private uh, company holdings, maybe stock options. So things are starting to get a complex and, and they're seeing that they don't have the time or they don't have the interest in trying to put it all together. They've been really good at their careers or maybe it's their right. philanthropic efforts and they say, hey, I just, right. I need somebody that I can trust that has the competence to pull all this together and make sure everything's working efficiently and working as hard as it can, given the risk profile that, that the client has. One of the things that you and I had talked about before we went on air was the, uh, the financial wellness packages that you provide to some of your clients. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this really came out of a need uh, for some of the 401k clients that we manage. Um, okay. So we manage their entire 401ks. And we saw that a lot of the younger mid-manager mid employees weren't contributing to the 401k plan. And so we did some research and started to try to do some surveys and trying to figure out why they weren't contributing. They weren't even getting the match, right? Which is, in our industry is kind of the, the free money, right? And so they right. weren't even doing that. And these are, these are not, you know, um, poorly compensated. These are very highly compensated people that would be able to contribute and in the end, what we found is there was a lack of not only knowledge around what the 401k plan and how it fit into their overall financial plan, but there was also a lot of financial stress amongst the employees. You know, they were trying to figure out how to meet their mortgage, how to save for college, how to, you know, uh, cover all the expenses that they have. And even though they were highly compensated, they still had a lot of financial stress. And so with the research, we spent a lot of time developing a program. And what the research showed was reducing financial stress has very little to do with the amount of money that someone has. Because I've got you know million-dollar clients that have financial stress and maybe a little different than somebody that's a $100,000 uh, person, right? And so right. what we did is, is went through and started to create a program that talked about this concept of financial wellness. 
and how you can start to put things in perspective to be financially healthy, much like we do with our physical health, right? And so what do they tell us about our physical health, right? Eat healthy, see the doctor every once in a while. Um, and so in, in, in financial health, it's the same thing, right? right. Don't, don't spend more than you make and, and work with a, a financial professional that can help you make good financial decisions. Has that been a successful uh, program for you in pursuing it with uh, companies locally and nationwide? Yeah, you know, it's, it's been rewarding for me for a couple of fronts. One, within the organizations, it helps us provide benefits, the financial education and, and financial advice benefits to people that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford our services. Um, and so it, it's rewarding in that front. And it was also rewarding in the front that we were able to provide a financial wellness program for something that's near and dear to me and my heritage to the Seneca Nation of Indians in upstate New York. They have a unique situation that when um, the kids there turn 18, they get an annuity payment. And this can be anywhere from tens of thousands and, and maybe even up into the six figures in some cases. And they get it when they're 18. And the nation was having a lot of problems that within six months, that money was gone. It's gone on cars. It was gone on eating out. gone on clothes and shoes. And it's amazing how much money you can spend pretty quick when you, you haven't had the education about how you should be, be using it. Right. And so we put this program together to help them understand what the impact of investing, saving, managing your spending can have. And so that was personally rewarding for me, not only because yeah. I was able to provide that to the Seneca Nation, but also the individuals, 18-year-olds, to really put some perspective around the impact that that money could have for them, not only on their lives, but the lives of their families. You say it's an annuity program. Was it a one-time payment that they got at age 18, or did it continue after age 18? No, it would continue, but the way that it would work is once when they were born, they would start to, that annuity would start, and it would accumulate and it uh, wouldn't get paid out until they turned 18. Okay. Um, and, and then all that money that had been accumulated up to 18 would get paid out. And then the annuity would continue after 18, but at a much, you know, smaller a amount. monthly mate, smaller amount that okay. wouldn't be that one large lump sum. Well, that's a valuable uh, service that you're rendering to your, your tribe, essentially. And I think that's a wonderful thing that you did. Um, last question for today. I represent a lot of registered investment advisory firms, a lot of financial planners. It's you know sort of my niche where I work with a lot of folks like you. I've helped sell them over time, help them grow. Um, I'm seeing a lot of change in the industry today. And my question to you is, what are you seeing and where do you see the financial planning and financial advisory industry going in the next few years, five years, 10 years? I'm seeing a lot of compression on fees and, and pricing. Um, what do you see coming down the road? Yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of things that we are beginning to implement and, and, and uh, pursuing within the firm. Uh, but a couple of kind of broader themes, I think, number one, as we talked before, the investment management piece, in, in our view, is the lowest value add of what we do. We do it well, and it does add value, but in the grand scheme of wealth management, it is the lowest value add piece of what we do. Um, because, so I think that is coming, that there's gonna be more automation for the asset yes. management. Um, and also to your point, there is movement towards more of a flat fee for service rather than the assets under management fee that we've seen in the past. 
And that's something that we're looking at and moving towards as well is that flat fee for service as well. Um, the other thing is that more technology is getting involved. I think clients demand that they have consistent and constant access to their plans, to their investments, and to the analysis and, and data that can be provided. So right. being able to pull things up either on a website or an app and really get an update. Um, and the integration for us, I think, is very uh, promising because we want our clients' financial plans to the, be the hub of their financial decision-making. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was with a, we have clients all across the country and sometimes they forget there's different time zones. Um, <laughs> and so I had clients in California and they were um, calling me. It was a Friday evening. For them, it was six o'clock. For me, it was nine o'clock. Uh, and they called me and they were sitting in a timeshare presentation and they were thinking about buying two of them. Okay. And what was rewarding to me is that they had, um, uh, we're sitting in this presentation, we're getting ready to buy two of them. And, and the wife looks at the husband and says, hey, you know what? Before we do this, let's call Thomas and get his perspective. That was rewarding for me because I'd gotten to a level of trust with them and understanding of their financial situation that they felt the, the um, interest and comfort to give me a call and walk through that. At the on, a same Friday, point, on a Friday night at nine o'clock. Yeah, right. It's, it's fortunate. <laughs> of course, the answer was no. Do not get get out, run, and <laughs> and and uh, there's better things we can do with your resources. But you know, the other thing is, we looked at their financial. They were able to look at their financial plan and say, hey, if we make this large expense, what's going to be the impact on the other goals that we have? Right. And I think that's where the real value is. Is from the planning perspective, if their plan becomes the hub of all their financial decision making. It helps align their resources, what they truly value. And that's an important distinction because a lot of times we're just spending money because it's available and because it's something we want, not understanding that there might be trade-offs between, well, if I do this, and that might mean I've got to work a little longer, or maybe the beach house doesn't become a reality or something else. So the integration of technology to really make the financial plan the hub of all financial decision-making is exciting for us. That's that's fantastic. I like your summary and I happen to agree with it. I think flat fees are the wave of the future and I think technology is driving a lot of behavior and decisions today in the wealth management world. And I really appreciate your joining me on Blueprint for Wealth. This has been a great session with Thomas Seneca of TM Wealth Management. Thanks for being my special guest today, Thomas. Happy to. Anytime, Julian. And thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth. Join us next time for a special topic and a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. See you next time.